please stand as I read God's Word. I'm reading from Luke 1. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, which by the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. The word of the Lord. From time to time before we attend to the scriptures, let them have influence over us. I will invite you to take a few minutes to pray personally as an exercise. One, to remind you that this is not just a passive thing like watching TV. This is something God intends for you to be open to being changed. God is trying to form you and shape you with these words. That's my expectation anyways, and I think it's his one of the few areas where we probably agree. I'm hoping for more of them. Will you pray silently, and then I will close this. Lord, hear your people as they ask for you to end any drought of visitation or speaking in their lives. And as you increase your influence over them, hear their prayers. so glad that you come with succor speedy to those who suffer wrong, to help the poor and needy and bid the weak be strong, to give them songs for sighing, their darkness turned to light, whose souls condemned and dying were precious in his sight. I thank you that without presumption, I can say, zealous God, for these precious ones that you have purchased and adored. Give them songs for their sign. Turn their darkness into light. Catapult them out of themselves. 
and into the marvel that you are. Let your mercy be something sweet and accessible. Let your might, muscular and awe-inspiring, be a comfort. We invite you to come, Lord Jesus. Now come. Amen. Last week in this and the two following, we're looking as a congregation at what we've titled A Way to Cheer Your Soul with the Songs of Advent. And that title comes from a song that we sang last week here, written by a person that we would call clinically depressed, bipolar, mainly just with the manic portions of that mental illness, a man named William Cooper. And he, in one of these lines, says, Sometimes a light surprises the Christian when he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings when comfort, when comforts are declining. He grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after the rain. And it seems to me as we approach Advent and we look at these songs, the song of Mary, the song of Zechariah here, the song of the angels when they visit the shepherds, and the song of Simeon, a man who's been waiting for the consolation of his people for so very long, that it's fitting to think about these songs and the visitation of God as a way of cheering your soul after rainy days in the bleak midwinter where it's 70 degrees. It's not always this warm. And so we're talking about that today and we're looking at Zechariah's song as a way of of cheering our own souls. Because these characters in this first nativity, this first advent of Jesus, this first arrival in skin on the planet Earth was a cause of great elation for them. There was a a relief that came over them, an exuberance that took them over because they realized that something was happening to them and for them personally, but something was happening on a cosmic level that, well, they couldn't keep in. And so, as you look at these words from Zechariah that Beth just read, let me tell you a little bit about the backstory, which you probably know something of. See, Zechariah, or as we have called him in our house when I'm trying to help our boys give a rip about certain Bible stories. Sometimes there's certain embellishments. Sometimes there's certain name changes. We'll call Zechariah Z-Dog for short. It works. So Z-Dog and his wife Elizabeth, well, they had a life that many of you could relate to in some ways or another. See, on the one hand, they were really model citizens. They're the kind of people whose outward lives and inner devotion would have been exemplary to all the people at church. But they're also the kind of people who would have thought in the quiet moments when nobody else was around, why does God forget about us so? Why does he let everybody else prosper? Why are there people out there who think about exercising and they develop a six-pack of abs? 
Why are there people out there who, who just think about a business idea and all of a sudden they're Mark Zuckerberg? And here we are, all we're wanting is that God would give us a little baby so that I would matter as a woman. I'd fulfill this very creational desire to be a mama. What is so wrong with that? What's so hard about that? Why won't God yield to that request? Some of you know that desperation, that very exact desperation. Wanting a child, not being able to have it. But if you don't know that desperation, you know another sort of feeling like my cause has been disregarded. God has put up the do not disturb sign on the doors of heaven and he's not listening. I cry out, I call to him, and nothing. Must have been raining the day I was born. You may be led to conclude like the blues singer. And Zechariah and Elizabeth in many ways could have said of themselves, we have this rain cloud that goes over our head. This great deficit in our lives, we've got no baby. And you can imagine living a righteous life, being blameless, keeping all the Lord's commands, people thinking, wow, you're such model people of faith. And inside feeling the conflict. God, do something. Ever felt like that? Well, so that's the backstory. And Z Dog, one day, as high priest, was going in to make offering, burn incense before the Lord. And an angel appears. It's the sort of thing that happens to all of you nearly every day. If it does happen to you, I would like to hear about that. That would be cool. And you, I'd give you the mic. This is an angel of war. This is Gabriel, who was quite overworked that first over Advent season, making all kinds of appearances. And he shows up and he says, At long last, your prayers have been heard, Z-Dog. Your prayers have been heard. You're going to have a son. And the fatal flaw of Zechariah. And people have done this all along. Abraham did it when he was told in the improbable case of this. He said, Look at us! We're wrinkled. We're all. Have you seen my wife? Zechariah said. He's worn out. How are we going to have a baby? And Gabriel says to him, Are you kidding me? I watch God brush his teeth in the morning. I'm telling you, I live with God. I'm in the throne room and I'm telling you you're going to have a baby and you're doubting me? Okay, just for that, here's a creative punishment for you. I'm going to give you the most remarkable news imaginable. And you're going to have to let it gestate like that baby inside of this. You're going to have the wonders of God ruminating inside of you. Some news that's so fantastic about God's healing of the world, about God not disregarding His people, about God finally coming as we've always hoped, and you're going to sit on it for nine months exploding with the wonders of God. And so, on the eighth day, a sad day for John, we'll soon find out because it's circumcision day, not the most exciting for a little fellow, but he comes to be named in obedience with the law, this sign that you belong to God. It's fitting that this kind of news and this kind of song would come giving of this sign and the application of it to God's people. A sign of His promises. A sign that God doesn't say stuff 
that doesn't have backing. And his family is saying, let's name him after his father. And the mother, Elizabeth, says, no, 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 no. His name is John. And everyone's looking at Zechariah and he's doing all this. Whatever you do when you're trying to indicate, I need a tablet. And on that tablet, he writes, his name is John. And at that moment, nine months of being wound up with the wonders of God come cascading out of him. And these are the words that he says. That's a lot of backstory, but there you got it. And this is his hymn. This is his song. And if you've watched many musicals, this is the sort of thing that happens. The, the action is going on. The story is progressing. There's conflict. There's drama. Then all of a sudden, everybody stops what they're doing and they sing. And you sing because you're reflecting, you're, you're pondering, you're, you're pausing for a second. That's what Luke's doing here with these songs. He's making everybody stop and consider the action because Zechariah knew he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's prophesying. God has jam-packed him with his own life and said, here, you're my spokesperson right here. That the arrival of this boy John and the soon-to-be arrival of the Messiah who's going to be born to his cousin Mary, well, it doesn't just mean... That some old coots finally got their prayers answered. Although it does mean that, and they're so excited. It also means good news for the world. And so this song is a pause in the action, a reflection of what the birth of this baby means. What are its implications? It seems to me if we can latch on to these, if we can sort of sing a duet with Zacchaeus, grasp what he's grasped will have a way to cheer our souls. It does seem to be the case that when people like Zechariah here, when you, the people who recognize God most have the most to sing about. The people who forget themselves most and recognize God's activity and have expectation of God's involvement and can really stand on his reliable assurances called promises. Those are the people who can sing the best, who have their souls cheered the most. And so we're going to talk for a few minutes about what it is about this song that we could sing along with, that we could notice that we might bring some cheering to our own souls when they need it. And I think you could sum up what's going on here with a phrase that I heard from my professor, Reggie Kidd, that God is near enough to heal and he's strong enough to save. That's worth singing about when you start to think about God is near enough to heal and He's strong enough to save. And that's exactly what Zechariah is talking about here. He says, praise be to the Lord as He opens His mouth for the first time. Nine or ten months. I don't know if the baby was early or what. And he says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come and because He has redeemed His people. Everything else is spinning out what that says right there. Because He has come, because He has redeemed, He's drawn near and He's strong enough to save. He's near enough to heal and He's strong enough to save. And He's finally come at last. I think you realize that one of the hardest things about being a person of faith is that you believe stuff. 
well, that's kind of hard to believe. And sometimes as you believe that stuff and you hope for that stuff, it doesn't pan out the way you think. And so then it makes you start to think, well, maybe that stuff's not true. His, history has shown us, the history of God's people, that this was a common occurrence in all of them, that very often it's the case that God's people say, why is God not paying attention to us anymore? Why is He not listening? How long do we have to wait? How long must we endure this suffering? How long must we endure this childlessness? How long must we endure this suffering and this anguish? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day and have sorrow and anguish in my heart? These are the kinds of things that people have always been praying. Zechariah and Elizabeth have been praying this in anguish of not having children. Some of you have wayward children that you can't be reconciled to. Some of you have got businesses that are tanking. Some of you have exams this week. How long, oh Lord, why would you come back tonight? If you're not going to kill my teachers, if you're not going to make a natural disaster to let us get out of school early. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't pray that he'll kill your teachers. There's some of them sitting here. And I like them. And God does too. But see, the relief that Zechariah feels, the, the consolation that Z-Dog taps into is something that's very available for us. The, the coming of God, His arrival in John the Baptist, and then soon as we see the coming of Jesus, means that we're really not alone. That God really has come near enough to heal. And the whole expectation of the Bible is He's going to come back. He's going to repair everything. But that He's very near, and He's very sympathetic, and He's very close, and He's very attentive, and He's very constantly available and that's worth singing about when you can believe it. I saw a movie this week. Oh, really? That's weird. What made you think that? And I cannot recommend it to you or to anyone. To some of you I might, but... It stars a fellow, like the loveliest man alive, uh, Brad Pitt, you've heard of him. And he's an assassin, and so that's part of why I can't talk about the movie in front of you. Although it seems I might be doing that at this moment. But one of the things in this very politically charged movie with lots of hitman activity, whatever that means, he says this great line. That really captures something about what it is to not believe that God has come, to not believe that He is listening, to think that our case is disregarded, or to be a person who's just not in relationship with Him. Here's what he says. As he's listening on in the background, this is set in 2008 election and after Barack Obama has won and he's talking about there's no more red states and there's no more blue states, there's just the United States, the kind of stuff that makes people want to throw. And he says, this guy wants to tell us we're living in a community. Don't make me laugh. I'm living in America. And in America, you're on your own. America isn't a country, it's a business. Now give me my money. That's how the movie ends. And I sanitized it to make it PG. America's not a country, it's a business. Now give me my money. In America, you're on your own. Well, I'm not making any political or sociological comments about that. But you know what resonates probably? It's awfully easy to think you're on your own. 
In fact, it's one of the most terrifying ways to live when you look at your life and its deficits and its defects and you look at your sins and you think, oh, if somebody knows about these, the state of your marriage, the, the fact that you're in a position that you're not up to the task to be in, you're not sure what's going to happen next week, you're, there's just so many things to feel alone about. And the difficulty of these things means when you feel alone in them, it's extra horrible. We see the ethic of hell, as Screwtape Letters envisions it, is a place where every man is on his own. Where every woman is on her own. Where everybody is out to defend and to protect what is theirs. Competition is the name of the game in hell. That's how Lewis envisioned it. And one of the things that is so exhilarating, if you should choose to believe it, if you act on it as if it was true, if you take the vision of life under the sun that the Bible presents and say, you know what? The fact that God's been watching on and He has invaded the earth and said, I'm going to fix this sucker, means that you're not alone. And see, in all the pronouns that Zechariah uses here are not personal, first person personal anyways. They're first person plural. That means instead of Look what he's done for me. Look what he's done for me. Look what he's done for me. It's more, look what he's done for we. Which is just a rhyme. That's not the objective use of the person. Look what he's done for us. Look what he's done for his people. He's paying attention to his people. We're not alone. And we don't have to live as if everybody that we meet is in personal competition with us. Because we're not in competition. Only in competition with each other. For people that belong to the God who's watching, who's coming near enough to heal. And that sort of move like a divine Bob Vila coming to repair this dilapidated planet. And he's sending an advanced preparation crew called John the Baptist to get people ready. And Zechariah realizes it. And he's excited. Because he means he's not alone. It means that we're not alone. Now, one of the things that Joe Nevinson said in a recent conference, I did not hear the talk, I just heard tell of it from Hutch. He says, sometimes life is so hard that it just hurts like heaven. And everybody says, no, that's not how the expression goes. You haven't been on the streets, man. No, he's from Philly, he knows. But he says, you know, it's not hurts like hell, it's hurts like heaven, because heaven cares what I become. Heaven cares about my renovation. Heaven cares that I not be alone, that I become a certain kind of person. And you know what hell hopes? Hell hopes that I'll live a solitary existence, that I will not change. That I'll just take the slow path of apathy, the path of least resistance. Hell hopes that I'll live in isolation and that as a, as a person that I won't expect God to do anything. I won't endure the pain or the rigor of waiting or of repenting or of changing. That's what hell hopes. So sometimes when heaven invades, well, it's painful. It's disruptive. But it's always to enable us to serve Him without fear. Zechariah says. In holiness and righteousness before all our days. I saw a, a billboard sometime and it said this year thousands of men will die from stubbornness 
I think it was a sign about getting your prostate checked or something like that. Have you seen this sign? It doesn't matter what it was for, but I like that. Thousands of people will die from stubbornness. And it seems to me that one of the things about believing that you're alone and acting as if that's the way it's supposed to be and that's the only way that it can be, what keeps you from getting cheerfulness for your soul is that a lot of you guys are consumed with the opinions of other people. And so you sit. And you, you're dying as a parent. Uh, you are, you have a increasingly rising guilt fever about nearly everything you do. You're not feeding your kids well enough. You don't know if you're being too strict or too lenient. You don't know what you're, you always feel like you're failing. And you do it by yourself. You won't, you won't come clean about it. Some of you guys have, well, you your depression, your sadness, your guilt, your anxiety, eating your lunch, and, and you, you endure it by yourself. You don't believe God has come? You don't believe He's come to His people? This community where He is drawn near to heal? And so you sit on it by yourself and you think, I'm the sole solitary case in the universe of this. You have marriages. Or you think, my oh my, how I got tricked. Some dude ain't who he said he was. He used to be nice and thin. This lady's not who she purported to be. And you struggle silently. You've got these sins where you walk around ashamed. Ashamed. You can't look people in the eye. People think one thing about you and you know the truth. You don't know how to endure it. And if you start to believe what God has come near, and one of the things that He's coming near to do is to offer the forgiveness of sins. His coming near is strong in that it's going to demolish enemies and rip us out of those who hate us, but it's also going to be tender mercy. The tender mercy of our God. Our professor Steve Brown told a story once about a little boy who was at his grandmother's house, and when he was at his grandmother's house, he was playing with a slingshot. And you know what a slingshot is? The rocks other things that projectiles you can put in there, I suppose. But by accident, purely by accident, he happened to kill her pet duck. Now, some of you may have a pet duck, and you realize the trauma of this. He killed her pet duck. She didn't know. Well, she knew it was dead. She, she, but she didn't know what caused his death. Maybe it died of natural causes. Never mind the rock-sized hole in its head. And... Don't call Peter. I'm, it's a story. I didn't do it. But you know what happened? He thought he was cool, so he kept it to himself. The thing is, there was one bystander, one witness to the crime, and it was a person, the gift, the, the most glorious gift in his life called his older sister. And his older sister had been put on the planet Earth to make sure that he knew that she knew of his crimes. And so every time it was her turn to do the dishes, well, she would merely need to speak in code, remember the duck. And all of a sudden, he was doing the dishes, and every time it was her turn to clean the room, hey, remember the duck. And all of a sudden, she was off of room cleaning duty. This woman had control over this, this little girl had control over this little boy, because she had the goods on him, and he was eaten up with his guilt. 
But the, the black male got exhausted. It got wearying, and at some point he decided, I'm not going to live like this anymore. I'm going to go and tell my grandmother. And so he went to tell his grandmother, put yourself in the place of this terror. Grandma, I'm a duck murderer. It was an accident, but I killed your duck. I did it. I did it. And you know what she did? She threw her arms around him and hugged him. And repeat that. She threw her arms around him. And she hugged him and she said, Oh, I know, honey. I watched the whole thing happen while I was washing the dishes. And I was wondering how long you'd wait to tell me. How long you'd live under the blackmail. How long you'd live in the exhaustion of it. How long you'd live feeling this way. And when you believe that God has come and that His coming means the forgiveness of sins, you can hear God saying to you, no matter what your crimes that you're afraid somebody's going to find out about, no matter how furiously you're posing and posturing to make people think something about you that's not true, you'll come clean because you know what? Nobody has the goods on you because God's been watching all of it and has said, I want you to know the tender mercy of my hug. That's what this Christmas song is about. John the Baptist came to say, here's how you can come clean with God. You don't have to live ashamed. You don't have to live as if everything about your life is all wrong. Own up to it. Because he's seen everything and he still has come to do something about it. In like manner, he says, the only people I've ever met who change, the only people I've ever met who get better are the ones who know that even if they never get better, God will still love them. And I think that's about the truest thing I've heard in the Christian life. Whenever I'm trying really hard, maybe God will come if I'm good enough. Maybe God will do something right if I, if I do enough things, if I act well enough. No. It's generally just in helplessness and coming clean and humbling yourself and refusing to continue a lie. It's coming clean and saying, you must do this. I cannot. God, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to change. But I believe that you're near enough to heal and you're strong enough to save. You start to change when you believe that. You start to change when you believe that God has been watching. And the reason He's come, the reason He's come at Christmas, the reason He'll come again, the reason that His mercy is going to rise like the sun after a very cold and dreary night is because of His promises, because He has set His affection on you, and He wants you to know the embrace of His hug. He wants it to be a regular part of your life. He wants you to count on His strength to rip you out of the clutches of enemies. He wants you to count on His nearness to heal the things that are wrong about you, but you've got to come clean about it. You've got to repent of them. It's got to be a regular part. Not so that you're constantly thinking of yourself, but so that you're constantly not defending yourself. A fictitious pastor friend of mine who lived in the 30s in Gilead, Iowa, said, I want to warn you against defensiveness in principle because usually when we are defensive, we're struggling against our own rescue. Zechariah can sing because he recognizes that the appearance of God 
means rescue. Rescue from the hand of enemies. And your biggest enemy is the evil one who's come to destroy, to kill, to maim, to keep you locked up in yourself thinking that you're alone. It's the world that wants you to live as if God doesn't exist. It's your own flesh that says, you got to look out for yourself because nobody else is going to. And Zechariah can sing because he knows that God has provided an antidote to season, you know, their seasonal affect disorder. Well, you need the sun. But there's also a seasonal arrogance disorder in each of us. It's sad. Yeah? That's an acrostic. Seasonal arrogance disorder. Sad. Come on. It's good. Okay. But you know what? To our arrogance, to the enemy who wants to keep us locked up and taking everything as a competition, we must defend ourselves like a fortress. The sun will come. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and shadow of death. Guide us into the path of peace. That is what you need to undo your arrogance is the mercy of God is looking at you with pity and not with scorn. He's looking at you with concern and not with disregard. He's saying, I'm coming near enough to heal. And I'm strong enough. I'm strong enough to defeat your enemies. I'm strong enough to save. I heard a story, and this is our close, this week about a mega pastor, well known in this country, and his son is also a pastor. He has been accused of all sorts of domestic abuse and suicidal and got all manner of addictions going on. And the pastor took pulpit and he said to this, I don't know, there's 10,000 person church, 20,000 person church, I don't know. He said, this has been the hardest week of our family's life. And it seems to me that hell is involved. But here's what I know. Hell will not win. All over your life right now, there are hard things, bad things, destructive things, terrorizing things, insecure feeling things. And hell wants to win. Zechariah's song reminds you that hell does not win. That the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That He will make the sun rise. The tender mercy of God will be the sunlight that's strong enough to warm and heal the earth. To rescue you from the hand of your enemies. And to enable you to serve Him without fear all of your days. Open yourself up to Him. Join in in a duet with Z-Dog. And believe that God comes and that God redeems. He's near enough to heal, strong enough to save.